Welcome to Belly Up to the Blackboard, a podcast focused on the reality of teaching and other musings from and about professionals, hosted by Chris Munn and Justin Russell. Welcome to episode five, That's Just Not True, The Misconceptions You Hear About Teaching. So today we're going to talk about, um, for you new teachers and those out there that are not part of the educational world, and and even those that are, um, just some of the misconceptions that um, are heard about teaching and either what teachers do, what our life is like. Um, We're going to talk about that today. Yeah, the uh, the one that comes to mind right away always is the uh, one that's always in movies and just kind of that backhanded insult, which is those who can do, right, and those who can't teach. And um, I, in my experience, and even in my f- first several years of teaching, I met so many people who had done other things, right, who had been successful at other things before they became a teacher, um, you know, I knew, uh, somebody who was a golf pro, uh, very successful and someone who, you know, built houses and construction and, uh, even you and I, Chris, you know, we've worked with several people who worked in the, you know, private and public sectors and, uh, you know, decided to come teach and not because they, uh, couldn't handle the real world as you guys want to say, um, but had some initiative or idea that they could teach the next generation, right. On their trade. Yeah, and um, I think this last couple of years has shown a lot of people that, oh, um, yeah, teaching is hard. <laughs> yeah. You know, teaching even just as one kid, it's your own kid. Now multiply that by 28, if you're lucky, 28 kids in a class. It's, um, it is definitely a profession, and it's not treated like that a lot of the times. Um, and, that, and that's the thing is that um, they think that you can just go into the world of teaching and, and just – Go ahead and go. I mean, here's yeah. here's a lesson plan, yeah. or hey, create a lesson plan, throw something together, and you're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, and uh, Chris, maybe you know, change the subject if you want here, but maybe before we get into some, you know, uh, listener uh, thoughts on misconceptions, maybe we should do like a I don't know, like a top five or top three or some misconceptions that we had going into teaching that we quickly found out were not true okay. um, yeah. from that, you know, cause it's, we've been in this for a while and I, I think there's a lot of misconceptions that we still find out that are not true. Yeah. So let's, uh, do you got one to start off the top of your, top of your mind there? Yeah. I, I so here's a misconception that, um, mm-hmm. that I found out quickly. Um, all school districts have the newest technology or newest ways to present material to students. Yeah, that is uh, definitely something I, I think we might have talked about something similar to this before is that, no, yeah, the money that some districts have compared to others is definitely um, vastly different. Yeah. You know, if you're going to, let's say, um, an inner city school that has a lot of kids, um, but, uh, you know, not, not a lot of money, you're going to have to make do with things that um, not others are going to have. You know, we started with I know I started with chalkboards and, and, you know, it's 16, 15 years ago. Yeah. So most people did, but, um, you know, when you're in college working with smart boards that, um, every day and you're, that's what you're training on. And then all of a sudden you're, you're back to chalkboards. Yeah. It's just a, it's definitely a learning curve, so to speak. Um, it's different from what you're used to. Yeah. And not just that, but like student teaching, I couldn't imagine student teaching in 
well, in Iowa, we have, you know, what, five classes now, but really four classes for school district size uh, for education. And so I, I could imagine student teaching in a large, uh, well-to-do, you know, community area educational system, uh, large amount of resources, or even private school that has large amounts of resources. And then, you know, getting your first job, super excited, going to change the world. And here you are, you can't find pencils, chalk, or anything, right? Uh, the printer's down because it's 20 years old. And uh, here you are trying to educate the minds of youth with basically just you. Yeah, finding, finding you know, when I remember my first year or two and you're, uh, you see a pencil in the hallway, you pick that thing up. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it's, I mean, unless you're buying your own pencils and stuff sometimes. And Now, let's make sure we understand that schools do provide most you know, materials, right? But you get a hundred pencils or 30 pencils or whatever it may be. It's, it makes a, it's a big change there when you, um, uh, when you start to run out, you know, and, uh, then all of a sudden you're picking up your, uh, picking up pencils out of the, the hallway there and excited if it's got an eraser on it. Yeah. And not just that, but geez, Louisa, I, I, and venturing off topic here, but you new teachers definitely make sure when you file your taxes this year, um, you look into that um, the whole federal the uh, the federal tax you know uh, write off that you can do for your materials. Two hundred fifty dollars doesn't sound like much, but trust me, you burn through that quickly. And if you're like a veteran teacher, most veteran teachers burn through that in July. Yeah, when they're preparing for uh, the upcoming year. So, um, other than that, no, I, I think that's a big misconception. Is is that schools are this large piggy bank that have unlimited funds to uh, purchase that stuff? So, yeah, you can't just go in and say, "Hey, I, I want this. I need this for my classroom," because you don't know if the funds are there to get that. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's what that's what a lot of people don't realize. They they think that. Um, you know, they get to school and they need something and it's all right, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to put this order in. I'll put this PO in and, um, that that's going to be mine. I'm going to have some nice stuff for my classroom. It's, it's not always the same that way. You know, you don't have, you don't have the money just to buy whatever you want. You have to justify, yep. you know, even just getting a, a new whiteboard instead of having a chalkboard. When I started, it was kind of tough sometimes because, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's not a uh, money tree out back for schools, you know, <laughs> and some schools, maybe there are, maybe they plant money trees. I, <laughs> I can think of a few that probably do have them, but yeah, um, yeah not every school is the same, but let's go ahead and slide into um, some of these misconceptions here that uh, some people have posted. And these are, you know, these, some of these people are educators, some of them are not, um, but we're going to read through some of these misconceptions. We're going to talk about them. So one of them is from a teacher in Cleveland um, says, I think a misconception I had was that all students had an intrinsic motivation to learn at some level. I also believed that data was extremely important. I do think it has its value, but I don't hold it in such a high regard anymore. And let's just break that apart to that first part of the misconception that all students have an intrinsic motivation to learn at some level. Um, you know, I think a lot of kids do, um, but I think when we talk about relevance and man, if you're a teacher, you've heard rigor and relevance, um, probably your whole career. Um, if it doesn't relate to something a kid wants to learn, he's not going to, or she, um, are not going to focus on it as much. Um, and they're not going to be motivated to, to complete that. 
Yeah, and I, I let's let's be honest. Like, if you need to fix something at your house and and you feel like you're pretty handy, uh, and Chris, you can attest to this. It's not like we call somebody that's a quote-unquote expert right away anymore. Uh, and I think many of you out there would agree or are like that. The the thing we run into anymore, and I think you educators would definitely understand this, or anybody with a teenager or uh, middle school student, is the fact that, man, adults are no longer the keeper of knowledge. Right, Chris? I mean, we when we were in school, and I mean, that was several, several years ago, but... The teacher or that encyclopedia, right? We're we're the uh, we're the keeper of knowledge. We're the you know the gatekeepers to uh, being smarter. And you know the old adage or posters, and I'm sure you've all seen those, which was knowledge is power. You know, rote memory has has really started to fade away as an important characteristic, I think, in our in our lives. And because information is so quickly accessed, and and so I do believe that there is merit in the the misconception that students have intrinsic motivation the one thing that i would i would venture to say is is that yes like chris you said if there is some connection to something they're interested in they're going to be more excited about it but in my experience regardless of the excitement level or as we call it buy-in from the student that only takes you so far if they're not well-versed in it. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, well, I think you have to look at, um, <clears throat> one, you, you have to look at home life because if, if education is not in the forefront in the home, they're not going to have that, um, that same want to learn or yearn to learn um, as maybe somebody where they come from a home where the, first thing, the most important thing is, um, is your education. And not necessarily grades, but making sure that you are, you are learning. Um, and I'm not saying this is everybody. It's a, it, this is a big generalization. But, um, I mean, we've, we've taught long enough that you can tell the difference a lot of times of two different kids of two different home lives based on how, how they are in a classroom. And I think if, if education is not something that's pushed or maybe – um, mom and dad didn't either graduate college, didn't go to college, didn't graduate high school and, you know, work hard, hard, you know, hard work is, is the most important thing. A lot of times it's seen as hard work at a job, not hard work in school. And I think that might be where, um, the intrinsic motivation is, is not there as much. And then the number two thing is, and everybody deals with this cell phones. When a kid has a cell phone, um, you know, you tell them as many times as you can, you take it away, you turn it to the office, they have to have parents come get it. Um, but when they have a cell phone right there that has a game that um, they win, they get some little reward, some a dopamine hit, when you have that extrinsic reward right there, it is very hard to get them to become intrinsically motivated. Yeah, and, I, and, and not to go into a whole, you know, psychoanalyst maslow freud type discussion here but we really have to narrow down what we're talking about as far as intrinsic motivation so i i pair it to this you know my wife says hey i really need you to look at the sink you know it's not acting right and i'm sitting there doing something i want to do and uh I'm not really intrinsically motivated at the moment. Now, when I say intrinsic motivated, I mean like personally invested in that because 
obviously my wife wants it done now and, and I'm doing what I want. And I, and I compare that to school. Like, you know, when a student's on their phone watching TikTok, Instagram, whatever they're doing that is they're vested in, and we're asking them, you know, as math teachers, Chris and I, we're asking them to do some math. I understand that. But there's, it really, really comes back to, in my mind, there's an episode of Scrubs where the chief of medicine decides that he's going to take on a patient. And he goes in and he finds this uh, millennial in there and she's on her cell phone and he starts to talk and she's already looked up on the internet what's wrong with her. And then he tries, she goes, why do I need to listen to you? And he goes, because I was like first in my class. And she goes, no, you were actually like the 30th in your class. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, I chuckle when I think about that because that is the age we live in. Um, adults are not trusted. And, and, and that's a generalization, but I think it in our experience, and I think a lot of you educators out there can attest, a mass majority of our students connect us to either somebody that has lied to them, not been stable, or consistent. And it is such a hard deal for us to do those things. And I think we do those as new teachers, though. And we, I, let me take back. We don't help ourselves as new teachers because, one, we either come off as fake because we're trying to be friends, right, yep. and make those connections with kids. Two, we're new at this teaching thing, so we are very strong in our curriculum, in our profession, in our classroom management. And so we are sporadic um, in how we handle situations. And so I think we have to go back to that as new teachers. We really have to understand, and that's the misconception again, is that intrinsic motivation for us a lot of times was fear. We didn't want to get in trouble with parents. We didn't want to grounded. We didn't want to get those curfews taken away, you know. You didn't want to disappoint somebody. Yes, and that's where the intrinsic motivation was. But for students today, that intrinsic motivation is to appease their friend. Um, they don't want to be that, that kid in the, the group when they're talking about an Instagram video or chat that doesn't know what's going on. And, and that's the intrinsic motivation. It's, it's fear still, but it's fear of being the left out. Being an outcast. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, it's, and, and this is, um, you know, we see this, and I would say... Every day, you we have kids that that are, are smart, but in their friend group, um, that is not looked upon as um, something to elevate your status. So instead of trying or um, you know putting forth that effort and and showing that they they have um, you know they have the brains, they just refuse to do it or don't try because it's looked you know it's not looked upon as something that. Um, will elevate them within their their friend group. Yeah, and then one last thing is thinking about the data piece. Yes, data is very important, but I'm going to use a term from data, which is the reverse to the mean. So we think about what you just said, Chris, about a student who is is able to do the work, has skills, we know that will probably be successful in some manner or way that they want to be. And if we think about data and how there's this reverse to the mean, we think about that outlier, those students will always go back to, quote unquote, what the average student is doing. And so I, that might be a bigger topic for another day about climate and culture. But if you have a student who is an outlier in their friends group or social group, it doesn't matter how high performing they are, regardless, their human behavior and just statistically, if you want to talk about that, they'll always go back to behaving and doing what the, the average or the mean is doing. And so I, I think we have to keep that in mind.
But great question. I, I think we could actually do a whole couple episodes on that motivation and on statistics. Um, Chris and I have been battling that for the last couple of years, statistics. Um, well, and I yeah. think with um, not to not to cut you off, but no, you're fine. Um, to go back to that new teacher thing, and when we talk about statistics and, and data, um, that's all well and good. But the first thing um, you mentioned, you know, they try to be a friend. Um, now, I think building that relationship will change um, how students react to you and how, how they perform for you, which obviously will increase the data. But, um, you know, you got to build that relationship with a kid through um, them trusting you, right? You holding them accountable because, you know, you hear it all the time. Kids want discipline. Kids want a structured setting, Right, so it's not going in there and being a friend as a new teacher. It's setting expectations, holding them to those expectations. Um, you know, and if you talked about being fake, if you don't know something, you say, "Hey, I'm not sure. I'll take a look at it. I'll let you know." Because the worst thing you can do, and, and especially in the it. yeah, definitely look into it, right, and then let that kid know you found it. Exactly, yeah. because if you don't, if you just make something up on the fly, well, guess what? They've got Google right there on their phone. They can either check it in class, which some do, or they can check it in the hallway and like, well, you know, this teacher's feeding me a little BS, um, and then all of a sudden that trust goes away. You know, you talk about it takes forever to build a reputation, build trust, it takes one second to ruin it, and that's um, and that's as a new teacher, you need to make sure you, and it's a tough, it's a fine line, but um, you know, holding those kids accountable. Yeah. Um, and yeah, data. We talk about data, um, like I just said. Before you even talk about data, you need to talk about that relationship. Because if a kid doesn't think you care, they're not going to try. So then that data piece you're looking at um, is skewed, I would say. Well, skewed in a sense, but you're right. I think you... So I do want to be careful for treading these waters of saying, but when you look at data, you have to encompass or include other factors. Because... Data is data, right? Like you shouldn't, there should be no bias or noise when we look at data. Now, when we take data and then we make conclusions, I think that's where you embed those factors because you can't draw the conclusion of data based on your previous experiences or biases or knowledge, right? I think you have to just take the data for what it is and then draw your uh, proposals on next steps. Now, you're right, Chris. I, I think in our setting, we have so many factors that cause data to be the way it is. But here's a great example of where data is taken in itself, and then we, we, we add the factor to why. So everyone knows that in November and December, what typically increases in a school building Oh, in December, uh, November, December, yeah. uh, behaviors. Behaviors, right? Yep. And we we can we can start throwing in. Well, this happens, or that happens, or it's because of this. But we we know from district to district worldwide that those months are the hardest on a lot of students. So when we look at the data, we see that there's massive spikes going on. So then what we do is we take that data that there's spikes in November and December, and then we start to game plan. Okay, it's September. We know that in two months, the kids are going to be nuts. What, are we, what can we do to mitigate those behaviors? Well, then that's where you start saying, okay, well, one factor of the behavior is this, or one reason the f- behaviors are happening. 
And I think that's when we start to discuss because you can't change the months. I mean, it's like, no. not like you're going to rewind the year, right? Every every October to make sure that you know November doesn't happen or September, right? Um, but I think we can start to mitigate like what those fears are. Like, so if a kid starts to act up because they know in December when the over break they're not going to have a food, well, shoot, we could take care of that pretty easily, right? Um, you know, they know that over the December months, both parents are working part-time jobs, right? And they're never home. Well, we can, we can help with some of those things, right? Like transportation or if there's clubs or there's other support things that we can provide as a school resource, you know. But um, I think that's a great example of where we look at the data. We say it goes up. So we just say yes, no, or make a conclusion based on the data. And then we add the outside factors. Yeah, and with um, when we talk about like testing and data and things like that, the one thing that not a lot of people talk about, or um, I don't want to say administrations, but we look at the data and we look at a kid that performs poorly, um, and we just assume that it's because of what's happening in the classroom. The problem is we don't think about the, those external factors. So what I mean by that is, um, did the kid get breakfast in the morning? Yeah. Did the kid... Uh, did he work all night because he ha- he has to help pay for, um, you know, pay for bills at the family? Did uh, did she have to stay up late and babysit mom, uh, brother, sister because mom and dad are not there, whether it's work or whatever it may be? Um, you know, those are all factors that a lot of times people just don't think about yeah. when we talk about um, testing a date and things like that. Um, so it's it, it's tough because i know we see we see data and we can, it's numbers and we can compare numbers but a lot of people don't think um about those those external things that are going on in the kid's life yeah and i i want to feed off of that or, or piggyback on that so one misconception that really arises when the data from a classroom performance of students is not good that it automatically is something the teacher's doing right yeah and and there's a great example where we where not we, but where education or people in education automatically interject factors into data. Instead of just saying the data, taking the data and saying the scores are not good or everyone failed a test, right? And then moving on to, okay, how do we mitigate this? What are the things that happened that day? We, people in education who make those critiques automatically jump to, well, the teacher's not very good or the teacher did something wrong. That, I mean, that doesn't make sense, right? Um, that's like saying, you know, you go in and, and get a, you know, uh, the flu shot and you get sick right after and automatically you sue the doctor because you said the doctor had to do something wrong. Well, there's a plethora of things that could have happened, right? Um, well, and you take those other pieces. So, okay, we say one kid, they perform poorly, it's a teacher's fault. Okay, what about the 20 other kids that perform well? Yes. Does the teacher get a bonus? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. right? Yeah. Or a pat on the back or some kind of recognition. Because trust me, when teacher's not very good, you know people are going around saying that teacher's not yeah, very good. Absolutely. Like, it's just like we talk about, you know, you don't talk about the positive things that happen. Um, you know, you go to the grocery store, you do great service a lot of times that doesn't happen one kid forgets a bag or something like that all of a sudden it's the worst place to go shopping ever so and i think that's just how a lot of people are built is that they they accept the positive things just because that's how it's supposed to be but those negative things that's where that spike comes in and they get angry and um you know that's that's the problem there we don't talk about how great some other things are so to kind of close that topic, I, I, in my mind, Chris, and, and you, you probably have your own opinion too, uh, to close this topic, so intrinsic motivation, 
I do think or do believe that students have intrinsic motivation on some level. Now, depending on what kind of a person you are, your experience and stuff like that, yes, you may be like me where it's a struggle to connect to students in, in today's age and, and find what motivates them. Um, but I think that's part of the struggle of being a good teacher too. And, and maybe that's just me, you know, pat myself on the back. But um, And then also data. I, I do want to conclude that data is important. I do believe that the that, that respondent does believe data is important. Um, but I do think we have to be very cautious nowadays, especially since there's abundance of data, um, on taking it at face value and then making decisions or conclusions based on what the factors are telling us. Yep, I agree with that one. Um, so should we go to another misconception here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, here's one that says, um, it says we have summers off. Well, and I think we can talk about, you know, the week off for Christmas or whatever it is. And, you know, teachers only work 190 days as our contract. Um, and then 715 to 315 is our contract time for us yeah. um, during the day. Um, and I think a lot of people say this in jest, knowing if they know a teacher, they know that's not true. But I mean, usually in the summer, at least once a week, I'm in school preparing for the next year yeah. um, over Christmas break. And now this is more for, you know, more new teachers do this, I think, because um, they don't quite have that routine down. Yeah. So, you know, they really want to get ahead of everything. And, and, and I agree with that, but it takes more time as a younger, newer teacher to be able to do that stuff. But um, even as a veteran teacher, um, and I can't believe I'm calling myself a veteran teacher, but you still take that time outside because it just makes your life easier yeah. between contract time and contract days of going up there, going up to school, getting things, or, whether it's organizing your room, getting stuff up on the walls. Well, it's um, less distractions, too, as we've gotten to be, quote-unquote, veteran teachers. Um, shoot, when, I, when we were new teachers, right, um, and you would agree to this and maybe talk to this, is your routine was way different. And your ability to complete things was way different when you were kidless, marriageless, you know, and houseless. Yeah. <laughs> right? It, it definitely, um, you know, I, and I, I had more time, but I don't think I was as efficient. And I think that's a case because I had more time. I could kind of slack off a little bit um, when I go up there on a weekend or, you know, I'd go up there, you know, once a week, you know, whether it's every Saturday or, or Sunday um, just to get stuff ready because I had nothing really else to do. I had some time to kill. Let's get everything ready for the next week. Now I can go up maybe a, an hour, maybe two hours on a Saturday and get everything done I need to and then get home back with my kids and things like that. And Yeah, so I think that's a great point, Chris. Um, yeah, obviously having the ability to have an office in your house or go up to the school or whatever you want to call it um, allows a lot less distractions. I do think there's some merit, though, in acknowledging how tough it is for a first-year teacher. Um, gosh, and Chris, you could probably respond to this, and so can a lot of you have been in teaching for years. Uh, those first few years suck. They do. I mean, very few teachers in their first few years have what they would probably have built up in their mind as a successful year, right? Um, you're navigating... Not only new curriculum, new boss, new staff, new colleagues, whatever you want to call it, you're also navigating your personal life. So now you're your own, uh, what, accountant? <laughs> you're your own uh, dating service. You're your own uh, realtor. You know, you are doing all this literally as you graduate in, what, May, 
Yep. You get usually your first job kind of as you graduate. You have about a month and a half to to navigate all those new things. Well, and usually, yeah, go ahead. usually nope. you can't, you know, get into your room till July 1 probably because yeah. the old teacher, if you're taking over for somebody, um, they've got that time to, to get stuff out. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to adjust to, depending on where you're at, you have to adjust to getting paid once a month. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you don't, you start in August, but you don't get that paycheck till for us, it'd be September 20th. <laughs> so now all of a sudden you're a month into your teaching and you don't have a paycheck yet. No. So you got to figure that out. And, and that's where that, I think that burnout or I don't know if that the expectations, I don't say expectations are too high, but as a first year teacher and the first couple of years, you're just getting into the job. Yeah. Even in your third year, there's still things. I mean, now there's even still things that we, we learn or we find out um, this far in, you know, 15, 16 years, um, you're in year two or three, you're still figuring out, you know, your behavior management plan in your classroom. Um, what's the best way to teach a lesson? You've yeah. done it a couple times maybe, um, but you're like, it's not going the way you want it. And yeah. then all of a sudden you're, you're feeling like, well, maybe I'm not a good teacher or maybe this is not the job for me. Um, when you just have to persevere through that and you know, you'll get into that groove like we kind of are now of, I don't have to be at school every day um, on the weekend. I don't have to be at school every day in the summer getting ready um, because now we know what we need for the next year. And for some new teachers, it's hard. You have to get through that um, honeymoon phase um, or that grind at the beginning. Because you're talking about the logistical side of things and, and I think that's where why we have a little bit easier now as veteran teachers is we have the logistical things as far as routine knowing the ins and outs of where things are in the building who to contact those things but yeah you're figuring those out as your first year and to go back to our last discussion we talked about that intrinsic motivation gosh the reason that it's not a 180 day year for us or a work year is because we spend our off time trying to learn what students, what motivates students. Um, Chris, you talked about behavior management plan. How many times does that change in, in a year? Oh yeah, or the the newest uh, bells and whistles of, or or um, not potion, but like just silver bullet yeah. that's supposed to work. So then you take courses on it, yeah. or you go to um, you know you different seminars or or conventions or whatever it may be, and now you're changing the way you're supposed to do things with the behavior part of it. Yeah. And you're, you're really right. You know, that, that saying is correct in a sense of you're right. So we have to only physically be in the building 180, 190 days of the year. But let's get thing, one thing straight. Teaching is the only profession where they expect you to be a, as good a, as a 20-year veteran as you are in day one. Like day one, you are expected you're evaluated five times a year in your first year. Uh, not only are you evaluated by one person, but you actually are evaluated by probably two or three people throughout that first year. Um, that's on top of you trying to figure out all of the systems and routines of your building, of your district. Um, yeah. and, and then also like trying to figure out your own life at 22, right? 23, 24. And, and just starting being a new teacher, trying to figure all that stuff out in your classroom is tough enough as it is. And like you talked about being evaluated, right? I mean, whether you have a great administration or a terrible administration, if they're evaluating you to help you out or if they're just, you know, they're evaluating you and they're going to judge you from that, the stress level 
of having another person come into your classroom yeah. and evaluate how you're teaching. And like you said, as a new teacher, you're expected to be as good, mm-hmm. some people think this, as good as a 20-year veteran. And that's just not the case. So even if you have a great administration, they're just seeing like, hey, where are your weak points at? Yeah. This, this is how you can do that. Um, assign you to a mentor teacher, whatever it may be, or here, here's some courses that I think would be great for you to take in the summer. Yeah. And that's a whole other thing about spending time. Yeah. Um, but it's just that stress or, or like getting ready for that pre, yeah. um, that pre-conference and just getting everything ready, making sure it's, ho- it's perfect for somebody. Yeah. Um, it's still stressful. So that's on top of trying to just keep your head above water. Yep. And, and I, if I have to give a piece of advice to New Year teachers, don't do what I did, which is in your first couple of years, try to latch on to every successful curriculum plan, book writer, teacher. The worst thing you can do is say, I'm going to be like Wormley and go out and do everything that he does, right? Because your teaching environment, I guarantee, is 99% different than his teaching environment. And so... I'm not saying there isn't value or benefit to some of these gurus, quote-unquote, that have books, touring series and all that. But I do caution the idea that as soon as you get that first evaluation and you feel like you're not a very good teacher, I do want to caution you uh, not to go out and buy all the books, video series, go to conferences and spend thousands of dollars for one type of teacher who's been successful in the classroom. Because let's, let's be clear, the reason that a lot of these people who are on, on tours and everything else is, yes, they were successful in a classroom, but they have very good marketing teams that help them market themselves and brand themselves and get these gigs. And so I do want to say that there is a lot of value in listening and taking to heart what is told to you that you can work on and then trying to figure out what that looks like from successful teachers in your building because honestly if they've been there for 20 years and they're successful i'm pretty sure the people that evaluated them have are looking for specific things that they're doing and so you can tag along and get that for free it doesn't cost you anything except time and don't try to uh, fit a square peg into a round hole yeah you have a great teacher that's a 20-year teacher in a math class and you're a special ed teacher that's teaching reading and writing there are some great strategies, but don't think you can just take yeah. exactly what that person's doing and do it in your class and expect it to be successful because it may not be. And Frankenstein it, yeah. Yeah, because then you're going to get really disappointed. Well, well, how come it doesn't work for me? It, and that's the same thing with some of those um, educators on tour. Like he was just, uh, Justin was just talking about with the books. You don't know what their classroom was like. You don't know what school they were in. Um, unless they were in your situation, yeah, there's great things that they are talking about. But like he said, you might have to Frankenstein it. I mean, you might have to change it up because it's not going to work perfectly for the everybody um, the same exact thing. So strategies don't always work for the same people in different classes. So um, don't stress out about that. Yeah. So I guess to close on that question or on that response, yes, I, I would agree. Our contract is for 180 days, but in all honesty, and and not to go into, because I can't name all the things that people do in their breaks or off time, I know teachers that were like me in their first 10 years who literally had three jobs. Um, I know teachers who, um, you know, 
do really well for themselves and they're smart with their money when they're younger and so they you know they do well as teachers and they don't have to worry about that personal aspect but as far as the contract goes uh, it's a non-stop process uh, education is one of those deals where everyone goes well if you want job security become a teacher because they never get fired well that's not true either because we are constantly evaluated constantly um, pushed to improve which we should be but on the same token, it's not a 180-day commitment. Um, even today, I know, Chris, you were working on some school things. I know myself yesterday I was working on some school things. Uh, and that's with families, right? Like, we have families we have to attend to. And so um, it's, not a, it's not a flashy job, but it is a job where if you want to be successful, there are things you have to do in order for that uh, misconception not to be true. Yeah, I, I like the way you said it. And that's a great way to end, end that one. Yeah. Um, let's take a look at, do we want to do one more or do we want to wrap up here? Let's do another one. Okay. And then we'll wrap up. Um, let's see. Um, anyone can teach. We kind of talked about that where if, if you can, you do. If you can't, you teach or whatever. Um, I think we've both been around people who cannot teach. And it's a short, it is a... Uh, short career for them. Um, and when I think about, there are some people that have vast knowledge of their subject matter. Um, but it, whether it's behavior management, whether it is, um, communication of that knowledge, communication. Of the, yeah, exactly. They might be a rocket scientist, <laughs> but if they cannot deliver that to a high school kid, and we'll say high school, um, it is not going to work out. Or if you do not have the patience to deal with behaviors, it, it does not work. Because I'm going to tell you right now, your knowledge and your excitement for that knowledge um, does not start at the same level with a kid in high school. Now, you can get some of those kids with whatever you're doing with your lessons and things like that um, to get them excited about what you know. But you've got to have that relationship piece and, and that behavior management piece. And I think we've both probably seen teachers that are um, very knowledgeable about what they're talking about, but they cannot get that, um, you know, they can't get that um, across to students. Yeah. And any of those of you who are in your prof new to the profession or looking to go in the profession, um, honestly, you know, you're going to read a lot about, you know, psychology. You're going to read a lot about brain development and pedagogy and those things. Um, I think you would be very benefited from going out and part of my English there, but um, going out and buying uh, John Wooden's book. And it's going to be a short read. It's inexpensive. But you talk about the idea of what makes a great coach and a great teacher. And in my mind, those are synonymous things. You're going to you're going to come out a much better person and educator if you read that book. Um, the idea that a teacher is someone who can just get paid, show up for 180 days, be in front of a classroom, not beat anybody and not get fired is a good teacher. Um, I, that has vastly been disproved. Um, I have a lot of, I have a lot of people who are in, 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 in friendships or in former, you know, relations, 
that had said like teaching's easy like you, you show up for 180 days you get paid all year you know you get vacations and it's like i always tell them i go that's fine you know what i'll i'll agree with you come to my class for a week do what i do for a week and put up with what i put up with for a week it and then you tell me without a complaint how it was and and i'll be glad to admit that you're right and none of them take me up on it well and even <laughs> if you have let's say you've got a curriculum already this is what we do in our classroom this is it is a curriculum day by day blah 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 just because it's like that does not mean you just regurgitate and read word for word from that book. It does not work like that. No. You have to be able to take that stuff that you're supposed to teach, go through it, and make sure it is at an understanding of the kids that come into your classroom. And that's assuming that the kids coming at your cl- coming into your classroom are at the level of where that book expects them to be. Yeah. Because a lot of times, and uh, we both both work in special education and specifically with math. Um, and when I was co-teaching, you would be in a classroom with some freshmen and they don't know some of the things that they should have learned in like seventh grade. So before you even start with that curriculum guide, you have to go ahead and backfill a lot of information. So yeah, it's not just show up, take attendance and read through a book and kids go do your stuff. Yeah. And it's, and it's not like riding a, you know, it's not like the phrase, you know, it's like riding a bike and it'll come back. Those students, they may have sat in that class for a week, two weeks, a month on one skill set. It's not coming back. It was not put in the rope memory. Um, and so I, I love that I love that misconception that teaching is easy. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that I can think of that you could jump right in and have some success at. Pickleball. I think most people could grab a pickleball racket, jump onto a court, and hit the ball at least once, right? Um, golf. I think a lot of people go, oh, golf's easy. You take the you know club and you swing and you hit the ball. Um, and Chris, you and I both know golf is not easy. Um, and I, I have a hard time, and I've been thinking about this a lot and trying to unpack this, but, you know, we talk about skills become more automated and or things become easier the more we practice and I've been trying to connect that to teaching and I'm not exactly sure teaching is a profession that follows in that vein because I think about accounting yes you become better at running numbers and spreadsheets and balance sheets the more you do it Um, I think about sports the more you practice the more you go through situations yes the better you become at I don't think teaching you will ever fully become good at. No. And when you think about like you just brought up sports and and things like that, because it doesn't change every year and sometimes semester, you have a whole new group of kids in your classroom, Yes, which those personalities change, um, you know, how they interact, they change. Um, You get a new kid in the middle of a semester, changes everything. You're always on your toes. Now, it's it's not quite as bad as when I was um, teaching at a shelter, and each morning you would get a new list of these kids are gone, these kids are here. You have to adjust daily. Um, but it is. By semester, by year, your teaching changes. You may have something that went well the year before with the kids you had, but now all of a sudden... It's completely different, so you have to adjust. It is it is um, a never-ending adjustment semester-wise and year-wise with how you have to deliver the content. Yeah, so to conclude on my end, yeah, I, I think we can all agree teaching is not easy. 
whoever says that teaching is easy, look, I'll give up half my pay to anyone who comes and does what I do for a month and not complain once and gets evaluated by an administrator and gets all fours or fives. Like, I will gladly do that. So there's the challenge. I, I don't think there's anyone out there that's going to be able to do that. But if you think teaching is easy, you, you'd say that out front to public, come and do what we do, uh, meet those criteria, and I will gladly talk to you about paying you to do it because you are the number one teacher in the world if you can do that. Yep, and uh, new teachers, just keep, keep at it. You'll, uh, years winding down right now. Um, you'll be fine. Just, yeah. just, just keep working hard, talking to those, um, those older teachers that still have a passion for teaching, um, and just soak up all that information. It's not always in a book. It may be by just somebody you're talking to. And, hey, grab a beer, talk to them, grab a drink, uh, glass of wine, whatever it may be, and just um, relax. You'll get through it. And, and build those relationships with those teachers in your building. Anything else, Justin? No, I think that concludes that one. All right, guys. Have a good day. Yep. See ya. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you with questions or topic ideas. Send us an email at bellyuptotheblackboardpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at bellyuppod, on Instagram at bellyuptotheblackboardpodcast, and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. Mm-hmm.